You are listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we continue our Sunday morning series on Jesus' statements about himself with a series we are calling I Am. With today's message, here's Shepherding Pastor Joe Cook. Have you ever had an experience where you were looking forward to something that was going to take place? If you were young, it could have been a birthday party or a a camp out or some trip with the school and you've been looking forward to it and you, you've been imagining what it'd be like, how people are going to treat you, what it's going to look like and you get there and you're just a little disappointed. Or maybe you were a teenager and you're like, man, I can't wait till I can drive and you, you finally get there and you get that driver's license and your parents just keep sending you on errands. <laughs> they hate me. <laughs> Things don't always work out the way we expect them to. This happens on a larger scale too, doesn't it? Uh, I won't ask for any amens on this, but maybe you had some expectations about marriage. And you get a few years into marriage and you're like, hmm, it's not quite what I expected. (laughs) Maybe it was a job, a career. You took that job and you had all of these expectations, all these imaginations of what it's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, how people are going to treat you, only to get in there and find out, Man, this isn't what I expected. I bet you've had experiences like that. Maybe on a small scale, maybe on a, on a big scale. A few months ago, I had an opportunity to spend some time in the mountains of New Mexico. And I was away from Wi-Fi. I was away from cell service. I wasn't roughing it. I had a cabin to sleep in. But I decided I need to take something to read. And I grabbed a book. And the profound reason for my grabbing the book is it said, trusting God in the wilderness. When I'm, well, I'm going to the wilderness. <laughs> Day two, I got hit right between the eyes with something that is said in this book. Have you ever been driving down a road and you haven't really been paying attention? You hit a pothole and it jerks you and you, you look back to see what happened. It was a moment kind of like this. On day two of this devotional, I read this. Expectations are premeditated resentments. And I stopped. It was like hitting that chug hole. And I rewound. I went back and I looked at it again. Do I believe that? Is that true? Expectations are premeditated resentments. And I began to meditate on this and chew on it. And over that period of time, while I was there in the mountains, I would think about this quite a bit. And I came to the realization that gave me an explanation of a lot of challenges in my life, a lot of hurdles, a lot of places where I got derailed. And maybe it's been that case for you too. In the book, what Ted Wiesty is doing is he is walking through what it looked like for the Israelites to come into the wilderness. The Israelites, as they left Egypt, you know, they said, you're free. You've been set free. And we're going to go to a land flowing with milk and honey. And they're like, hey, that sounds great. And then they got out and they're in the desert. That wasn't quite what we were expecting. Ted writes this, unexamined and unseen, our expectations can lead us towards all the same resentful responses that were present for the Israelites. And look at that list, anger, discontent, fearfulness, and striving. As I meditated on this concept, I realized in my own life story that I have been derailed so many times because of of tightly held expectations, no more significantly than in my walk with the Lord. I can remember in my late teens, early 20s, feeling like I wanted to go into the ministry, a call to the ministry. So I changed schools and I switched to a Christian school and I was going to study 
their, their theology courses and I'm having all these imaginations. I was very naive and to say naive is that's kind of a nice word for what I was. I thought, man, it's going to be like walking with Jesus. I'm going to have professors. They're going to love me and I'm going to have these, these comrades. They're going to work with me. They're going to receive me. We're going to have so much fun. We're going to dig into the word. It's going to be great. And I got there, wasn't quite that way. Some of my co-students that I was with, their moral, ethical code wasn't a whole lot different than the other schools that I attended. And one of my professors spent most of the semester explaining away the miracles of the Exodus. I'm like, this guy doesn't even believe in the Bible. I was disillusioned. My expectations were, were peeling away and falling apart. And during that time, I had the opportunity to become a college and youth pastor at a church of about 300. And I had some expectations about that too. Boy, me and the pastor, we're going to be we're going to be best buds. He's going to mentor me, and I'm going to be working with all these great people and loving, with these, loving on these kids and having all these great experiences with them and taking them and teaching them and work. And you know what? I got in, and there was dysfunction. There was discord. There was politics. And I got chewed up and spit out. About a year and a half in, I burned out with a red-hot flame. I was four months into my new marriage. On Easter Sunday, I resigned. That's pretty hot burnout. I didn't have anything planned. I didn't know how I was going to support my wife. <laughs> Ask her about it one of these days. That wasn't what she expected. My expectations have derailed me more often than I would like to admit. This morning, we're going to see one of the most historical examples of that. It's probably the greatest example of how expectations can derail a group of people. If you have a copy of Scripture, we're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning. If you don't have a copy with you, we have some Bibles in the back. We'd love for you to take one. If you don't have a Bible, we'd make a gift of it to you. But open it up because we're going to read a lot of John chapter 6. There's about 70 verses. We can't read all of it. But before we start going through it in chronological order, I'm going to jump to our focal passage. This morning... We start our first of the self-portraits of Jesus where he says, I am. There's seven of these I am portraits where Jesus is revealing something to us about himself. This morning, it's the bread of life, and it's in 635, and we read this. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, I'm going to leave that up. I want us to recognize we have very little context at this point. We know a little bit about Jesus. We know he was a teacher and he was a rabbi. And he makes a statement. For a Jewish audience, when they heard, I am, they would have immediately been triggered. That was how God introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. With just, just very little context, we can exegete. We can pull out of some things out of this passage that are very helpful. Notice he says, I'm the bread of life. Now, they have to make a decision at that point. Either this guy's insane and he thinks he's a loaf of bread up here talking to us, or he's a rabbi who's teaching us something. He's using a metaphor. Okay, I'm going to assume that they made the connection. He's not insane. He's not saying that he's grain and salt and water and mixed together. No, he's a rabbi. He's teaching something. What is he teaching? Look, whoever comes to me shall not hunger well, that bread would satisfy hunger, but notice it's a strange bread. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When I eat bread, I usually get thirsty. Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life, and this kind of bread, it satisfies your hunger and your thirst. In other words, whatever your needs are, 
this bread, the bread that I am, will satisfy it, physical or spiritual. I am the bread of life. It's a big comment, isn't it? It's a big statement. So understand, this is not a small thing. He's saying, whatever your needs are, I can satisfy them. Now, that's with just a little bit of context. We already see that it's extremely significant, but he has a lot more to say. So I want us to zoom out a little bit and think about the bigger context. This is the first century in Israel. They're occupied by Rome. For four centuries, they haven't had a prophetic voice. For four centuries, priests and rabbis and scribes have been teaching them the scriptures that had been written and telling them Messiah's coming. And they had some big expectations about what Messiah was gonna be like. Let's look at a few verses. Now there's hundreds, okay? We're gonna look at three. These are three prophecies that they would have been taught that would have guided their expectations about what Messiah would be. Here's the first one. Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase, notice, of his government, and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A kingdom, never ending, a government. What do you think their expectations were? When Messiah comes, guess what, Rome? <laughs> that was a major expectation, a Davidic heir. So that's one. Here's another one. This is from Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Notice the heavenly origin, the divine decree, the divine words here, the origin that he's coming from in heavens. It continues. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Guess what, Rome? When Messiah comes, you're out of here, right? That was one of their expectations. One more. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God, this is Moses speaking, the Lord your God, he will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is to him that you shall listen. So they've got all of that milling around in their mind, all of these expectations. So with that big context, join me in chapter 6. Look at verse 2. A large crowd was following him. Notice why. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They had seen him heal the lame, give sight to the blind, cast out fevers, cast out demons. They're like, this is a guy worth following. And so they do. They follow him into a wilderness area. And I'm going to paraphrase what happens next. Over the, the course of that day, Jesus teaches them 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's easy to estimate well over 10,000 people in the wilderness. No food trucks around, by the way. And Jesus feeds them. And they have enough that they're filled. And when was the last time Israel had a large number of their people out in the wilderness and a prophet fed them? Oh, they had some expectations, didn't they? 
And look, look down at verse 14. When the people saw the sign, the sign of the feeding in the wilderness they, that he had done, they said, notice, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, here's what I want you to catch. They were right. They were right, but they're not completely right. Look at what Jesus does in response. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus hid himself. He withdrew again to the mountain by himself. He hid himself. It's a strange response. Why, why, would, why would he hide himself? Isn't he the prophet? Yes, he is. He's the fulfillment of all those prophecies. But here's the thing that they weren't catching, and we're going to see this as it goes on, is he, his mission was first to rebuild the hearts of his people before he rebuilt the nation. He wanted to deal with the, the things that were going on in their hearts before he dealt with the things that were going on in their world. In Matthew 23, verse 37, there's this beautiful passage where Jesus is standing before Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to gather you under my wings like a hen. And then the sad words, you were not willing. Their Messiah came, but he came in a different way than they were expecting. He was who they were expecting, but he wasn't doing things in the way they expected. So as we move forward, look at verse 26. He's going to start to teach them. He's going to start to exegete the truth to them. He's going to start to say what kind of bread he is. Notice in verse 26, the first thing he says is, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Jesus said, you're looking for a temporary fix, a temporary meal. The food that he's offering is so much more, but they're following because they had their bellies filled the day before. They're out there in the wilderness, and this guy can just make food appear. That's pretty practical. Not only that, we're looking around. There's thousands of our countrymen here. That's a small army. Not an insignificant army. Let's make him king. And Jesus says, your, your vision is too, too short-sighted. He's going to start directing them to a bigger vision, casting more vision for them. Look at verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man, there's a reference to that Daniel passage, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. He said, work for something bigger. You're working really hard. You've chased me down. You've followed me across the sea. By the way, this isn't the 10,000 plus. When he slipped away, a big group of them, big enough for John to call him a crowd, they chase him down and they start asking him questions. And he says, you've worked really hard. He doesn't chastise them for seeking them, but he does begin to talk to them about seeking the wrong thing. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? They heard him say work, like, well, I understand work. Tell me what to work for. Tell me what to do, because we understand work too. You see, when you work, you earn, you get what you expect. Jesus says the hardest possible thing you could say to people who are ready to roll up their sleeves and get busy. Do you look at what he says there in 28? This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. He says to trust me. That's a lot harder than work. We're going to see it in their response. Look at verse 30. They said to him, because he just said, trust me, believe in me. 
then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? At this point, I just want to go, really? You've seen him heal the sick, make the lame walk. He fed you in the wilderness, and they say this. What sign do you do that we may see you and believe? What work do you do? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. He has just said, believe in me. He has fed them in the wilderness, and they have the audacity to look at him and say, perform something else. You see, they expected a Messiah that was going to come in in glory and power and dissipate and run away all of their enemies and make life, make the good times roll. And they're like, perform some more. You see, they want more of a genie in a bottle than a God on his throne. And I could be very critical of them except for the fact that I've been there myself. I've had to recognize that sometimes I just want God to make my problems go away. If I'm good enough, God, if I do things the way you say, if I go to church, if I read your Bible, if, I, if I'm a good boy, will you take these hard things away? Sometimes I, I would like God to be a genie in the bottle if I'm honest. That's kind of what they're dealing with. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And this next verse is real important. For the bread of God is he, now notice, it's not a what, it's a who. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So there's some silliness that's going to take place, some foolishness that's going to take place. They're going to start thinking about literal food, that he's saying he's literal bread. And he is being as clear as I know a person could be. He said, the bread of God is he, not a what, a who. And they said to him, well, give us this bread always. Notice they're still wanting bread. <laughs> and then we come to our passage. And we can't read tone into text, but I can't help but say, thinking at this point he's going, me, I am, I am the bread of life. Look at that. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a strange kind of bread. It's a bread that meets every possible need. And when we have the people hear this great I am statement, I am the bread of life, I am that which will meet your needs, physical, spiritual, whatever you need, it's me. Hunger, thirst, you're looking at it, believe in me. How do they respond? Well, in our next three phases, our next three points, we're going to see the bread was rejected. The bread that was offered was rejected. The first reason, he doesn't look like what they thought he was going to look like. Look at verse 36 with me. Let's read through verse 40 together. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not lose, no, I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. There are a number of key points in those four or five verses there. First of all, you notice he says, you've seen me. Not, he's not just saying, you see a, a humanoid figure standing in front of me. No, you've seen me. You've seen what I've done. You saw me heal the sick. 
Make the lame walk, make the blind see. You've seen me feed thousands upon thousands of your countrymen in the wilderness. You've seen me, but you don't believe. And he's saying, those who do believe, you get eternal life. You're going to be part of the resurrection, raise it up at the last day. You get to participate in that forever life. And verse 40 is key. There's some language in chapter 6 that may, may stump you. There's language about the Father giving people to the Son and drawing people to the Son and granting people to the Son. And you may be thinking along the lines of some theologies that, cho- that say that God simply just chooses unconditionally. These people go to heaven and these people don't. I don't believe that's what this verse, what these chapters are saying because of verse 40. Look at it. This is the will of my Father. If you ever want to know what the will of God is, Just Jesus saying, this is the will of my Father. Look at what he says. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Who does the Father give? Who does the Father grant? How does the Father draw? It's by looking at the Son. Jesus himself will use that word draw in chapter 12 of John, and he'll say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. It's the look of faith, and it's for everyone. No one's excluded. If you're here this morning and maybe you're hearing Jesus presented in a way that you haven't heard, I would encourage you to to think and sense the Holy Spirit drawing you to the Father and to the Son, to look upon the Son, read about him, find out what he did, find out what he said. 2,000 years ago, he gave his life for you and he gave his life for me. And when we look upon him and believe, we are received and Jesus says we are never cast out. We are secure. All are welcome. None are forced. If you want a big takeaway from chapter 6, none are forced. Do you remember how big the crowd was? It was huge. Thousands upon thousands. Then a smaller group finds him. And then we're going to see it just keep shrinking and shrinking until our last conversation this morning. It'll be Jesus and the 12. They looked. They saw. In fact, they saw what no one else has ever seen before. They didn't believe because he didn't look like what they were expecting. But that's not the only reason he was rejected. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? They're like, I know where that boy's from. I've been to his hometown. I've, trafficked, I've been there before. I've traveled there. I, I know who he is. I know his daddy. I know his mama. I know his brothers. That's not the way Messiah is going to come. Do you remember the Son of Man statement about the divine entry, the clouds of heaven standing before the Ancient of Day? And this guy's from Nazareth. They had some of the pieces of the puzzle. They weren't all wrong. But if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle and you've only put some of the pieces together and you've still got a bunch in a pile over here, sometimes it's hard to tell what the picture is. They had some pieces of the puzzle that they weren't using probably because of confirmation bias, because they didn't like it. Confirmation bias is where you start to look for the data that you like. I like that. I like that. I like that. And that, that meets my presupposition of what a Messiah should be. But there were some pieces that they weren't putting into place. One is from Isaiah 53, the whole chapter, really. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
You know who that looks like? That looks like a guy from, from Nazareth. It looks like Jesus. There were some pieces to the puzzle that they weren't, they weren't using. Jesus said this in another place. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says, and all through this chapter, really, if you go and you read through it slowly, if you've been listening to the Father, you would recognize me. If you've been, if you've been taking all of the pieces and laying them out and looking at it, you should have a better picture. And here's the thing. Some Jews did recognize him. In his early days, in his childhood, Anna and Simeon, they give praise to God because they recognize him, but they were in the majority, minority. Most people had these fantasies, these ideas, these expectations of what Messiah would be. He's going to make the good times roll, the bad people leave, and life is going to be good and easy. And he did not come in that way. And the crowd's going to get smaller. Let's take a sneak peek a few verses down. Look at verse 59 with me. In verse 59, we see that now this conversation that's taken place over a couple of days, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. We had a group of our, our folks who went to Israel uh, recently, and we took some pictures. And here's a picture of the synagogue that was built on top of the first century synagogue. Now, at its peak, at its full capacity, you might have been able to get three or 400 people in there. But that's a far cry from thousands, isn't it? You see, this crowd is diminishing. This, one, this group that was about to make him king by force, they're starting to peel away. There's one more reason that we see a rejection. He didn't speak as expected. Look at verse 51 with me. Now, I want to prepare you. At this point, Jesus is going to be kind of graphic. The discussion now is going to take a turn. You might even use the word dark. In verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give the life, the life of the world is my flesh. Now look at their response. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now do you remember when we looked at the focal passage in isolation? It's almost imbecilic to think that this man who's clearly not insane, is saying, I'm a loaf of bread, come nibble on my arm. That, that's not what he's saying. And yet they go to the ridiculous. How can this man, it's like we'll find anything we can do to refute what he's saying because he doesn't look like we want him to. Jesus is going to do something that shocked them and it may shock you. He's going to follow that thread with them. Look at what he says. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and now it really gets serious, and drink the blood, you have no life in you. Oh, my. If you're a Jewish person with Jewish ears and a Jewish background, you don't drink blood, and you sure don't drink the blood of a human being. He has just said something that is making their heads explode. Their paradigms are falling apart. And we come to verse 54, and he's going to use a different word. He says, whoever feeds, that's different than eat. Eats, just simply put it in your mouth. But this word feed, it's devour, it's gnaw, it's, it's munching. One scholar talked about the sound that it would make. And Jesus says, whoever feeds, gnaws, devours my flesh, and drinks my blood, he's doubling down, 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now he's going to triple down. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh, that's that word again, gnaws on my flesh and drinks my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I have lived because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, devours me, he also will live because of me. And then he says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and are die, have died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Wow. Things just got weird, to say the least. One scholar talks about this passage this way. He says, if eating flesh was shocking, drinking blood was outright offensive and especially abhorrent to Jews who were explicitly forbidden to partake of blood, according to Genesis 9. Jesus had become more than a mystery to the Jews. He's now unavoidably scandalous. That's a good word. Scandalous. Why is Jesus doing this? What's going on? Why is he? I want to tell you he is taking his foot and he is drawing a line in the sand. And he's making it any, impossible for anyone to be on the fence at this point. You're going to have to make a decision about Jesus. I think he's using a technique that is explained in Proverbs 26 where we read this. Answer not a fool according to his folly lest you be like him yourself. Sometimes when a fool speaks, you just ignore them. But then you have the reverse of that in the next, pass, next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, doesn't that contradict? No, it's saying there's a time for one and there's a time for the other. This is what the Bible Knowledge Commentary says about that passage. These two sayings belong together. They complement each other. Their point is that one should not be drawn into a fool's level. That's the first one. But then notice, but at times... He must use the fool's language to refute the fool so that he does not become conceited. This group of people have taken things to the ridiculous, and Jesus is forcing them to make a decision. You, you want to be literal? You want to talk about eating flesh and drinking blood? Okay, let's go there. He's forcing them into a place where they have to make a decision. And some of them make a decision. Look at verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, now notice his disciples heard it. It's not a reference to the 12. This is just the followers, those who have been traveling with them, broader context disciple. Many of his disciples heard it, and they said, notice, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Ooh, he's using words that we can't, ooh, I, I can't, mm -mm. Messiah is not going to talk that way. I can't listen to it. Now, he's going to offer an explanation for anybody that cares to hang around. Look at verse 63, first part of 64. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken, notice the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe. He's saying, I'm talking about spiritual things. You don't have to go to this ridiculous, scandalous idea. We're talking about the things of the Spirit. We're talking about bigger picture things. We're not talking about eating bread, eating manna in the wilderness. He's inviting them to come in, further in and further up, closer to him. But many can't handle it. And we read, and after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer 
walked with him. If I were to put in a nutshell what's going on, I would phrase it this way. They expected a Messiah who would challenge their enemies, not one that would challenge them. Let that sit for a minute. I have to tell you that I've been there. They expected a Messiah who would challenge their enemies, not who would, one who would challenge them. The reality is, is my expectations of Jesus sometimes are that he's going to make life easier and better and everything will go smoother according to my expectations and my plans. And he challenges me. There's a danger in insisting that God live up to our expectations. I've fallen prey to it. Maybe you have too. But let's not end there. There's a, a happy ending of sorts. Now remember, the crowds dwindled. We had thousands. Then we had a contingency. And then we had them in the synagogue. And now Jesus is going to turn to his closest companions. Look at verse, let's read verse 60. Uh, six one more time after this many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him and then we read so Jesus said to the twelve do you want to go away as well I want you to consider what he didn't say he didn't say do you guys understand I don't think they did he didn't say here's something I want you to do he didn't force them he simply asked them a question What's going on in your heart? What do you want to do? I think he's asking that to some of us right now. Maybe you're being faced with something really difficult in your life. Life hasn't turned out the way you expected it. Had someone tell me that the other day. They said, my, my life has not turned out the way I expected it. I didn't say anything, but there was a thought, well, welcome to the team. It's reality, right? But there's a danger in demanding that. But Peter... If this isn't Peter's greatest moment, it's at least one of them. And I love this. He speaks. We read in verse 68, Simon Peter answered him. And look at what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And he continues, and we have believed. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, right up until the very end, these disciples are still arguing about who's going to be highest in the kingdom. They're expecting a literal, physical kingdom to come to the earth, and it would have happened if the hearts had turned to their Savior. But right hours before he's crucified, they're still bickering and arguing about who's going to be the top dog. They don't get it either. They're loaded down with expectations, but Peter says, you talk in a way that no one else talks. You say things that no one else talks. You offer something no one else offers. We believe in you. You see, they had developed a loving attachment to Jesus that superseded their understanding of him. Look at this proverb. Trust in the Lord. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Trust in Yahweh with all of your, notice your heart, and do not lean on what? Your own understanding. Jesus has drawn a line in the set, and he said, will you trust me when you don't understand me? And he has asked me that over and over throughout the course of my 55 years. Joe, will you trust me when you don't understand me? When you don't understand the diagnosis, when you don't understand why the job's so hard, when you don't understand why marriage or family or parenting or whatever you want to put in, you fill in the blank, whatever you're going through, when it doesn't work out the way you thought it would, will you trust me? It's a tough question. 
It's an invitation. And Ted Wiesty, in that devotional that I, I talked about, he says this in the closing comments on that day, talking about himself. He says, my expectations have been that God was, was supposed to get me out of difficult seasons and that a difficult season could not be the plan. And then he says this, examining our expectations is one of the first steps on the journey to deepening trust. Examining what's going on in our hearts and our minds. I have to admit that I really wanted Jesus to change my circumstances, to transform my circumstances, and I discovered that he wanted to transform me. It's, it's something that we're all going to have to walk through. Our expectations, we hold so tightly to them. But it's an act of worship and it's an act of growing as we begin to evaluate where am I holding so tightly the way I think God should be and start to, to release. In this first part of our year, we're, we're discussing these I am's and the concept of knowing Jesus better, knowing who he is. In order to know him as he is and who he is, we may have to release we may have to release some things. So I have an invitation for you this week. Find some time. Ask the Lord to reveal to you where you've been expecting him to be one way when he's, he has a vision far superior. I really would like for him to make all the storms go away. And yet his vision is to make me, to transform me into a person that, who can stand in the storms. That's a, that's a bigger God because he doesn't have a lot to work with. And you might, agree, you might agree with yourselves as well. He's a God who wants to transform us. And part of that process is releasing. So I invite you to find some time. We have some questions for you in the bulletin to reflect on, to apply. I invite you to take that with you or look in the YouVersion app and think through that this week. Invite the Lord to guide you. Invite him to communicate to you. Where have you been clinging too tightly to some expectations of how he's going to be? You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.